Hola y welcome to Femas Faith. I'm Erika Reynoso, a church kid and pastor's kid raised in La Iglesia Pentecostal. I'm hoping to share encouragement and compassion to struggling church kids like myself. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. One thing about the Latino church is that everyone gets to participate. Everyone gets a chance to hold the mic and minister from the altar. Well, maybe not everybody, but certainly a lot more than what I see in American churches. I think there's beauty in this because in this country, Latinos are rarely given positions of leadership or power. But in church, they have a voice. They can hold leadership roles and they can use their own gifts and talents for good. So when I look at who I am today as a leader and woman, I think back to the many roles I played in church that pushed me to grow at an early age. By the time I was 18, I had played multiple roles from youth president, leader de reunión familiar, children's ministry director, mujer, worship choir, Sunday school teacher, and that doesn't include the many things I did for being a PK. My first time that I ever preached at church was actually when I was eight years old. At eight years old, I was the president of the Ninos, the children's group at my church, and a part of that leadership was preaching in one of our children's services. I actually took my sermon from a Sunday school <laughs> booklet and basically plagiarized my first ever sermon. And it was about the second coming, La Segunda Venida de Cristo. I was eight years old and preaching about end times. <laughs> um, as I prepared for my first sermon, I remember in my mind mentally picturing the congregation and how they would respond to my sermon. I had created this idea that my sermon was, was going to be groundbreaking and was going to stir a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit in my church. I felt so empowered and on fire to catalyze an awakening at my church at only eight years old. What I remember the most, though, is that I also pictured all the people from the congregation that I knew didn't pay attention during the service. I even remember thinking about this one church member that literally fell asleep during every sermon. And I began thinking about how I was going to scare him during the sermon. Since I was going to preach about the second coming, I thought it'd be funny to walk over to the drums and very loudly hit the cymbal to scare that one sleeper so that he stayed awake during the sermon. Well, I, I actually didn't do that. I wish I had, that would've been funny. But no, I didn't, I was a scaredy. <laughs> um, I was absolutely dying of nervousness, and the day of, I literally finished my sermon in four minutes record time. I remember wearing a pink Skechers shirt that had glitter on the S with the long khaki skirt and my white sneakers that had Skechers etched in pink. I don't think that my actual sermon lived up to the image I created in my mind, nor did I have the audacity to act on my tactics to wake up the sleeper in church. I do, however, tend to connect this moment in my life as the first time I experienced self-righteousness. This was a moment where I felt better than that sleeping church member and thought myself to be in a superior position because I had a chance at the mic. And I wanted to use that power to embarrass or scare someone who I considered less than me. I know it sounds like I'm reading too much into it, but it's this same tendency that I caught in my heart growing up that has required 
God's deep work in my heart. Self-righteousness is a sin I have struggled with through most of my formative years. Here's the reason. I understood the gospel as a performance-based faith. And now, as a mom, and as I try to understand the gospel in a deeper way, so that I can pass down a true experience of the gospel to my daughter, I look back at the moments where I put together the foundation of my beliefs and I've identified how those moments created performance-based faith. I've tried taking a close look at how and why self-righteousness has been a major driving force in my faith for the majority of it. And I'm going to let you in on what I've learned. And if you're someone who doesn't struggle with self-righteousness, still give it a listen because it'll help you understand the self-righteous friend in your life. Wink, wink. (laughs) Uh, So let me explain by giving you an example of behavior that was consistent in my self-righteous ways. Going to church every opportunity I had and not missing a church service. So being a PK... I was definitely at church more often than not when I was growing up. Like when we had construction going on, I would go after school most days. I didn't miss church services. I fought asleep, but I always was there. And of course, this changed when I was in college, but for the most part, I prided myself in never missing church. And whenever I did miss church, I would feel this icky feeling in my stomach. Like... I remember once missing church to do something fun when I was in college and something happened while I was out having fun and I immediately thought, it's because I missed church. God was punishing me for missing church. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, but let me start with this. (laughs) Um, From the altar, I always heard the importance of going to church, how crucial it was to go to church consistently and try your best to go to church. And I also heard criticism of people who didn't go to church. And there were moments, this was before COVID, when people were celebrated because they would come to church even when they were sick. They'd stand up and give a testimony talking about how they went to church sick so that God could heal them. I remember my senior year in high school, I would even go to the vigilias, you know, the night-long services, and I would literally just sleep while I was at church. But the thought was, you know, at least I'm at church. And now it's also important to note that in our church community, we have three church services a week, along with other meetings going on outside of church service time. And this isn't a pick-and-choose situation where you pick one service to go to and you're good. Um, I remember being so shook a few years ago when I discovered that there was a white evangelical church that had services on Saturday nights. I was shook. But then I learned that the Saturday night service was just the same service done on Sunday and was meant for people who didn't go to church on Sundays. So for the American churches, you go to church on Saturday if you don't go on Sundays. But for us, we go to church on Friday, reuniones familiares on Saturday, and we're back on Sunday. It's, it's not a pick-and-choose situation. <laughs> well, since becoming a mom and since COVID hit us, I've sat with this internal struggle of going to church, more so with the pull and, and the guilt that I have when I miss. 
Before being a mom, I always told myself I would never be the kind of mom that has a bedtime and schedule for her kid because that's just not something that I saw growing up in my culture and it's something I attributed to white people. Well, fast forward to being a mom, a working mom at that, with my baby in daycare and the weight of just living in this world, I stopped prioritizing going to church on Tuesdays to maintain my daughter's routine and schedule and some semblance of, of routine with my child for my own mental health. And at first, the, the guilt would eat at me because I could only imagine what people were saying about me for missing church. Then in the midst of some of the struggles I was having, there's a moment where I only went on Sundays and I just felt like my spiritual status was being chipped at by others. And what brought this shame was the history I had with being self-righteous about never missing church. I was coming face to face with the reality that I used to perceive my church attendance as a qualifier for my salvation. I had been so self-righteous about going to church consistently that I was all challenged and my own limitations made it difficult for me to go. So here's the main idea of self-righteousness that we need to understand clearly. Being self-righteous keeps your eyes on yourself as a means to reach God. Your behavior, your performance, your actions, your appearance. In order to reach God, you must perform well. But removing self-righteousness and living in humility means recognizing that the only means to God is Jesus. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing that can be attributed to you is what makes you any more deserving to reach God. Now, I don't want you to misinterpret what I just said. You are worthy of being in the presence of God, but that worthiness is not qualified by your own means. God's grace and love is what invites you closer to him. The goodness he bestowed upon you and the gift of salvation he offers you is what, you, is what should give you a sense of freedom that salvation is a gift not something to work towards. So as I was shifting through my self-righteousness and, and really dismantling those thought systems that fed into my self-righteousness, God would bring me to the self-righteous people of the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to read about the self-righteous in the Bible and automatically make them the antagonist of the story. I roll my eyes, judging them, acting baffled at their behavior. I've seen the self-righteous people in the Bible as roadblocks, people to skim over because they don't matter. They're the ones used as examples to not be like. But when God had me revisiting these folks, he was like, now hold up. You need to take your time and learn why they are the way they are. You need to learn to empathize with the self-righteous and to do what and to do that, you need to pay attention to them. So I strolled through the stories of the prodigal son's brother and the dinner at Simon's house and the Pharisees and and the thread I found through each story was that they were all in pursuit of the same thing, the father's attention. When they saw others get Jesus' attention, they said things under their voice. When they saw others get nice things, especially on the Sabbath, they judged with their laws. 
When they saw everyone getting access to God so easily, they plotted against the life of Jesus. So I took a step further back trying to answer the question, why are they like that? Because when because we meet the Pharisees in the New Testament and they're just seen as the antagonizers of Jesus with no good to contribute to Jesus' mission on this earth. But why did they become the way they were? This one I found a great podcast called Intertestamental History by Corey Bauer. Nothing has opened up my eyes to a piece of biblical history the way Corey did in his podcast. For all these years, I just knew the Pharisees and self-righteous of Jesus' time were just annoying. You know, I saw them as the villains in the Gospels without ever being curious about their backstory. And if you know me, you know how much I believe that who we are today is because of our past experiences and stories we carry. And I had neglected to learn about the Pharisees and their backstory. See, we all know that the 400-year period between Malachias and Mateo was a time when God was silent. That's, that's all I ever knew. I never wondered what that meant for the people of God who went from having a prophet speak to them constantly to all of a sudden hearing nothing from God. I never wondered what it looked like for the core of their culture and identity to go missing for multiple generations. I never wondered what level of despair and trauma and questioning and confusion came from the loss of safety when God, who protected their armies and fought for them, went missing. Corey Bauer does an excellent job of explaining what went on during those 400 years, and it allowed me to understand the self-righteous people of Jesus' time. See, we recall that God was not just a religious figure to the people of Israel. God also brought about political autonomy and triumph in war. God provided the people of Israel with geopolitical confidence and protection. So when God went silent for 400 years, this wasn't just a silence in spirituality, but also a time of deep political uncertainty. The God who fought their literal battles was absent. In the midst of coping with this disorientation, there were some responses that shaped the generations leading up to Jesus' appearance. In his podcast, Corey Bauer talks about how there were those who sought some semblance of certainty by maintaining the practice of studying the word of God, the books of the Torah. That's when the scribes, who were the ones closest to the word of God, became people of power and authority among the people of Israel. They were the ones still constantly reading and studying the books of the Torah in order to remain connected to the God who went silent. They began as a response to a great tragedy, but after years and years of nothing happening, that practice really became harmful and abusive when they positioned themselves in a place of power. What had be begun as a coping mechanism became a tool to control others. Their spiritual pursuit of God through the scriptures became intellectual when there was no spiritual ground for themselves. And that intellectual pursuit of God harmed others when it was devoid of, of hope. So you have the scribes who hold a social power over the Jews because without their God to establish a political reign, 
They were subjugated to foreign empires and did not have political power to exercise for themselves. And there were other groups of people among the Jews who had great power, but this is about as much as I can recount, <laughs> recount without messing up too much of the history because Bauer goes more in depth and I recommend you check his podcast out if this sounds interesting to you. Well, I took the time to learn about the people who I saw as antagonists in the Gospels because I saw how destructive their self-righteousness was. Their self-righteousness was harmful because it left no space for hope, no space for redemption when the, when the Redeemer himself showed up and was among them. And yet, you see that the behaviors of self-righteousness were rooted in a pursuit of God. They were rooted in getting God's attention when generation after generation, the people of God were left godless. Imagine the fear, uncertainty, and danger that came from 400 years of silence. The Jews did what they had to do in order to survive, and in the process, their coping mechanisms became tools for oppression and judgment. I care deeply about uncovering the roots of self-righteousness because not only have I wrestled with that sin, I've witnessed it all around me for most of my life. I see how Christians judge others, measuring others by their actions, appearances, and, and performance. And a performative Christianity is one where Jesus is no longer the one who says who is saved, but the Christians that live a checklist faith. It's performative Christianity that uses self-justification to reach salvation and gives people the power to say whether others are saved or not. This Christianity is what has harmed so many in my generation. There are countless people who I've seen leave the church because self-righteous Christians left no space for compassion and grace when a hurting soul was judged for their outer looks. Somewhere along the line, those who left the church will find the compassion and grace they once were neglected. And somewhere along the line, God beckons the self-righteous Christians to justice by uncovering the layers of pain and shame that have led them to lead lives of so much destruction. I think of the moments that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. There are moments where Jesus gets real with them. He usually has a pretty fierce tone with them. The way he speaks to the Pharisees is, is distinct from how he speaks to those in need. Jesus gives them his attention, which speaks volumes. I think Jesus had the capacity to see the generational trauma that led them to where they were. That's why he took Simon's invitation to his house for dinner, that's why when the woman poured perfume on Jesus' feet and Simon judged the woman and Jesus, Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus gave them his attention because he knew they needed salvation as well. And even though they resisted him, Jesus still spoke to him. He could have chosen to ignore them, condemn them with no opportunity for salvation, but he didn't. He spoke he taught and he gave them the opportunity to repent. 
This episode has been a few months in the works. It's required that I take a close look at the self-righteousness in my heart in order to recognize the self-righteousness in our churches. It's given me the chance to have hope for people who have been hurt by the self-righteous, by harmful systems we now see in, in churches. It's given me the chance to see that Jesus is still speaking and calling these churches to repentance. There's a generation, and I'm a part of that generation, that longs for authentic, real faith that is not defined by a rules-based faith, but by a grace-filled, love-driven gospel that is what Jesus intended for his people. I hope this gives you hope too. If you've been hurting, if you've left the church, if you're in it and struggling, if you feel the dysfunction of a performative faith, I'm with you. And I have hope. Because without it, we go nowhere. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at TMSBase and subscribe to this podcast. Your following and sharing helps spread this message of hope and compassion. Gracias y hasta luego.